following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Morning, church. Great to see you guys. Um, my name is Brian. If you're new here, I'm the lead pastor here at Missio Day, and I'm really grateful that you are with us. Um, we are in the book of Acts, and so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 15. Uh, that's where we will be for the bulk of this morning. Uh, also, just want to make mention, you've probably seen this in your seat back, but there's an orange and gray card this week. Uh, we'll have this out for the next two Sundays, but uh, for all of us. So if you're new here and looking to maybe get connected, uh, you can fill this out. But for everyone else who's a regular, uh, we would love to, for you to take a moment and fill this out during the gathering as well just so we can update our information and know uh, that we have the correct email address and phone number and whatnot for each of you. So uh, instead of the giving boxes, there are some baskets in the back where these can just be laid uh, after the gathering, and I'll remind you again at the end. Uh, Did the cold weather, like, suck the soul out of us this morning? Is that what's going on? Okay. Uh, Everyone's just sort of very, and 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 Jesus is alive. And so, yeah, we can celebrate, like, we can be joyful in the midst of pain, in the midst of hardship, and I'll get to that uh, in a little bit, um, a little bit later, but um, yeah, I just, I, I want to remind you, you know, it could be worse, right? And heaven's going to be awesome, uh, and Jesus is alive. So uh, we are passing the halfway point in our, in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, Acts is like a biography of the early church, and uh, it's taken us 23 weeks so far to get to this point, uh, but we've actually covered likely 15 to 20 years of the ministry of the early church. I think sometimes we lose the the time frame because we're just going through it at such a rapid clip. Uh, But this is 15 or 20 years of ministry here. And what we've seen is the gospel has has spread from this small handful of believers in in the resurrected Jesus to now tens of thousands of believers across a whole bunch of different nations and cultures and people groups. What Jesus said, that, you, that the early church would be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, is coming, has come, and is coming true. And, uh, and so along the way, though, we've seen this cycle. I mentioned again last week, the cycle of opportunity and opposition. Opportunity and opposition. And sometimes that opposition even comes within the church. So we saw this in Acts chapter 6 when there was a controversy over a ministry issue that some people were being overlooked and it got brought up. Today in Acts chapter 15, we're going to see a conflict over theology. And I know some of you are going, oh, here we go, theology, right? And you don't think it's important. But this issue, uh, as well as the issue in Acts 6, had the potential to distract, divide, and even destroy the early church. So it's vitally important for us uh, even today. Uh, not the specific issue as much as the principle, and I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit. Here's what happened. The early church, they put Jesus first, and they were able to, to push through the issues, right, and, and maintain the purity of the gospel. And I want to start at the end really quickly because I want to show you something here. This is the end result of this big controversy that they have. Look with me at verse 30 of chapter 15. It should be on the screen as well if you don't have a Bible in front of you. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, having gathered the congregation together, and they delivered the letter. There's a letter that gets written, we'll talk about. And listen what happens. When they had read it, they what? Rejoiced because of its 
encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were, there, uh, who were the, themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So the end result of this theological controversy that we're going to see today is rejoicing, encouragement, and strengthening. Beloved, that is my prayer and goal for you every single Sunday when you walk out these doors, is that you will be rejoicing in what Christ has done, that you'll be encouraged, and that you'll be strengthened in the gospel. Now, last week I said, and I still stand by this statement, that it's hard to be a Christian in this age. Because to be a Christian in any age is to stand against the wisdom of the age. And so it's difficult to see where culture's going and the things that are happening and to know what's true and to see it, it contradicted by the lives of so many that we love. And yet at the same time, being a Christian is the easiest thing in the world. Jesus himself said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we can, when we gather together, rest and rejoice in the finished work of Jesus. And then we have the privilege to respond to the Holy Spirit's encouragement to make us more like Jesus. And it's easy, and it's light. And that's really what today's passage is all about. What does God require? What is the, the burden that we carry as followers of Jesus? So we have a ton of uh, ground to cover, and rather than read the whole thing, uh, I'm going to pray for us now, and then I'm going to read a section at a time, and we'll kind of talk through it as we go, okay? All right, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, um, we are grateful to be your children who have the right to be called the children of God because of the finished work of Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection from the dead that allows us the privilege of being united with Christ as sons and daughters of God. We thank you for those immense privileges that we don't even understand. And as we gather this morning under the authority of your word and in the presence of your spirit, God, I ask you to meet us here. Um, many of us are weary and downtrodden, um, and some even feel like you have disappeared. And yet you are here. And you want to speak to each of us today. And so as we look at this passage, which seems confusing and maybe not even related to our lives, I pray that you would show us how poignant it is for each one of us uh, today and that we'd walk away with, with joy in Christ, with encouragement and with strengthening uh, in our souls for the sake of the gospel. We love you. We ask you to meet us here. Holy Spirit, please fill me and empower me as I preach this word that it might be helpful to your people. And uh, we ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right, let's look at Acts 15. We're going to start with the first five verses here. So remember, before we get into it, uh, Paul and Barnabas had just finished their two-year journey, their first missionary journey. They come back to Antioch, and they stay there no little time. That's what the end of chapter 14 says. They remained no little time with the disciples. So they're in Antioch, okay, where they were sent from. And here's Here's where uh, 15 starts. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I love his phrasing there, no small dissension, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. 
So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought, here we go again, great joy to all the brothers. But when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So if you're a note taker, very simple points here. Um, What we're going to see in this first section is that salvation comes by faith. Salvation comes by faith. Paul and Barnabas, as I said, they're back in Antioch, which is their sending church. Remember that the church at Antioch was a multicultural church. Uh, There were at least 18 different uh, ethnic groups that were represented in the city. And when the gospel invaded the city of Antioch, uh, people began to, for the first time, cross these ethnic boundaries and gather together as one people. And they were so unique and so distinct that they actually were called by the culture Christians because they didn't fit any other religious category. They weren't a sect of the Jews. They weren't any other religion. They belonged to Christ, and it was evident. And so they were called Christians there. So Paul and Barnabas have been gone for two years. They're, they come back. They're resting. They're, they're equipping. They're, they're you know, blessing the church here. And at some point, we don't know when or how, but at some point, some Jewish believers come from Judea. Now, we find out later in this text, in verse 24, that they're not on official business. They were not officially sent by the church in Jerusalem. Uh, but nevertheless, they come, and they come as teachers. And so they're welcomed by this early church to teach Uh, to to encourage the brothers. But their message is essentially this. You must go through the Jewish rite of circumcision and follow the Jewish law in order to be saved. Now, the majority of the Antiochian believers were Gentiles. They had no relationship with, no attachment to, no history with Jewish practices. And so this is a bit of a shock to them, right? That, that, yes, Jesus, but also we have some minor surgery for you and rule, like a lot of rules, a whole bunch of rules, okay? That's, it's got to shock the system a little bit. And so they're going, whoa, 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 what, what is this all about? And Paul and Barnabas are like, whoa, back up the flint knife a minute, okay? We got some stuff to talk about. And, and it causes a stir. When, when Luke says no small dissension and debate, he means it was a brawl, okay? Because Paul is a brawler. I don't care how you, I mean, he's the one who looked at that guy and said, you son of the devil. And you think that someone's gonna be like, hey, Jesus plus we gotta take you behind the woodshed and he's gonna be fine with it? So he comes up and he's like, uh-uh, this is not how it is. Now, just to give you some context, um, and I know so, so many of you want me to not say circumcision many much more times, but it's going to happen a lot. <coughs> the ritual of circumcision uh, was given by God to Abraham, who was Abram. He called him, uh, changed his name, and he said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and you are going to be a blessing to all nations. Through your family line, all the nations of the earth, including Gentiles, by the way, will be blessed. And circumcision was the, the, the sign of that covenant, okay? And so um, it, was, it was essentially a permanent, lasting, physical mark on the body to say, all that I am belongs to God. 
And, you know, when, when covenants were entered into uh, by God with, with man, um, there was a blood sacrifice usually, and there were uh, blessings and curses pronounced. And so the blessing is, you're going to be my people, I'm going to bless all nations through you. And the curse was, if you abandon this covenant, you will be cut off from God. And so this ritual had a lot of symbolism and meaning to it. And though Abraham, the, the, the scripture reminds us, Abraham was saved by faith, wasn't he? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, okay? So that's the reality. But over the course of time, uh, the Jewish people began to conflate obedience to rituals and the law with acceptance and salvation. So by the time Jesus comes along, uh, largely the Jewish people believed if we just do these ceremonies, and if we follow the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law, but the letter, if we follow the letter of the law, then we'll be saved, and nothing could be further from the truth. So when Paul meets Jesus, remember, he's on the road to Damascus. He's going to go, you know, bind up Christians and arrest them and take them, because he's a Jew who is a Jew of the Jews. He's obeying all the letter of the law. Uh, he's, He's, you know, according to the law, he's righteous, right? He's done everything. And he meets Jesus on that road to Damascus, and he realizes that salvation only comes by receiving what Christ has done with the empty hands of faith. Salvation only comes by faith in the finished work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. Paul realizes that, and it changes everything about his life. And from that point forward, Paul's constant refrain was Jesus plus anything else as a requirement for acceptance before God is a totally different gospel. It's a false gospel. It's anathema. It is a curse. So he was very, I mean, the whole book of Galatians is about this. Jesus plus anything else is a different gospel. Now, put yourself in the position of the Jews for a second here. The fact that the Gentiles are getting saved is a little confusing. Um, Jesus was Jewish. The whole council of the apostles were Jewish. Uh, The early church was founded in Jerusalem, which is the home base for Judaism. Their Bible up to this point is the Jewish scriptures. And so... Though they knew the scripture and they knew that the Gentiles would be included in some way, they really had this understanding that the Gentiles will become Jews and then Christians, right? So I've said this a few weeks ago, when Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, originally they thought, go into all the world and make disciples of all Jews. (laughs) And so when the Gentiles started to come to faith, they were a little confused by this, right? Now you see that the church at Antioch is the one commissioning Paul and Barnabas on their mission, not the church at Jerusalem. You see these Gentiles, non-Jewish people with no attachment to Judaism, coming to faith in droves and keeping their Gentile identity, not conforming to Jewish practices or laws. And for the Jews, they're like, what is happening? What is is going on? And what does God really require for salvation? So this is is where this argument, this tension is coming from. And so they they realize this is not going to be resolved in Antioch, and so they commission Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem. Some of those other men, they go back to Jerusalem and they say, look, the apostles are going to help us discern what the right path is here, okay? 
So Paul and Barnabas, I love this, on the way they're sharing about all that God had done in these cities, how Gentiles embraced Jesus. And they're, they're, the people in those cities, Samaria, other places, they're like, this is awesome. Praise God, right? They get to the church. They, they explain to the apostles what has happened. And then you see in verse 5, I think it is, um, let's see, verse 5, um, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, or sometimes it's called the circumcision party, which is not a party you want to go to. They rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, meaning the Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the party of the circumcision is saying rituals and rules are not just important, they're essential. Okay, so now we back up and we go, we got two different gospels here, don't we? This is a big deal. This is a major, major issue. On the one hand, you have Paul's gospel, which is come to Jesus as you are and believe and you will be saved. And then you have the gospel of these Pharisees, the gospel of the circumcision party, which says, yes, come to Jesus and believe and adapt to our way of life, adapt to our culture. One is wholly a work of God. The other is partly a work of God and partly the work of man. Human effort. Okay, so what do we do with this? Because I bet none of you woke up this morning going, you know, there's a lot of issues in the world. I mean, we got all kinds of conflicts, right? Military conflicts, political conflicts, vaccines, masks, all that. But if I could just solve this circumcision debate, right? Nobody woke up that way. Okay, so we're like, okay, what does this mean for us? Um, Adding to the finished work of Jesus is still a thing in our day. And it happens more often than not by well-meaning, well-intentioned people who just add on to what Jesus has already completed. There are whole denominations that believe that that salvation comes through faith and baptism. You have to be saved You have to be baptized in order to be saved. Uh, For instance, you can look at the Roman Catholic Catechism, and that's what it'll tell you. And they're not alone. There's other denominations that would would say similar things. Um, So baptism becomes an essential thing. For some groups, diet is an essential thing, right? You can't eat pork. You can't eat shellfish. they're, They're adhering to Old Testament law, and bringing it into the gospel. And they might not say it's a salvific issue, but it's kind of a salvific issue for them. For some, it's gifts of the Spirit. Well, you're not really saved unless you speak in tongues. For some, it's the way you dress. Welcome to salvation. Here's a uniform. For some, it's politics. I've had people say to me, to my face, I don't know how you can be a Christian and also be a fill-in-the-blank. I've heard it for all three, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, (laughs) Green Party. No, I don't know. But I've had people say that. I don't know how you can be a Christian and vote for so-and-so or do this, right? We're adding to, we're saying it's the gospel plus the way you vote. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was about 15, and uh, my youth pastor said to me, okay, now that you're a Christian, you, you need to get rid of all your secular music and start listening to Christian music. And I was like, that's, I don't think so. Like, if that's true, because he's like, God doesn't honor secular music. And I was like, well, then why did he make Christian music so bad? 
And this was the 90s, and it was, it was bad, okay? But there's this subtle, well, it's Jesus, but also behavior, but also the way you act, the way you vote, the way that you, right? Um, and all of us are tempted to add a little something onto the gospel. But one theologian, uh, Jay Gresham, uh, I always mess his name up, Jay Gresham Machen, Presbyterian theologian, he put it very bluntly, and he said, Christ will do everything, or Christ will do nothing. Salvation is wholly a work of God, and we don't add an ounce of any of our effort to it. And that's the best news in the world. <laughs> it's by faith, and even the faith to believe is a gift given to us by God himself. So, that's the controversy, right? Paul, Barnabas addressing the council. Now, let's continue. You guys with me? Let's look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter, so we have a second voice now, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He's referencing Pentecost there, Acts chapter 2. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So he's echoing Paul's sentiment here. Salvation is by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. If you have your own Bible, underline that. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. We'll stop there. So my next point is very simple. Salvation comes through grace. Just quoting Peter here. Salvation comes by faith. Salvation comes through grace. Or you can reverse those. I mean, off the way I learned it was salvation is uh, by grace through faith, right? Interchangeable. Salvation comes through grace. Now remember, all the apostles and all the elders in Jerusalem are Jews who have believed in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And it's likely that there are some of them who had never even considered whether a Christianity without Jewish heritage could be a thing. Like it was just an assumption. And so they're having this robust debate and dialogue about the implications of these two different gospels. And so in the middle of that debate, here's Peter, who's going to stand up and, and give this address. And he, he, he essentially refers them back to Acts chapter 10, which was about 10 years before this council. And he says, do you remember when God called me to preach to Caesarea, which was a Gentile city? Remember, it was his pig-in-a-blanket dream uh, where he sees God lay this sheet down and it's all these unclean animals and God says to him, rise, kill, and eat. And he's like, no, 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 Lord. And God's like, Peter, come on. Like, <laughs> we've been through this. 
And three times he denies it. And then there's a knock at the door and there's these Gentiles who want him to come. And he realizes the dream's not about food, it's about salvation. And that salvation is for all, not just for the Jews, right? There's no distinction. There's no separation between them. So Paul goes, or excuse me, Peter goes to Caesarea and it's Cornelius who's this Gentile, but a God-fearer. He's, he's sort of following the God of the Old Testament, but he's not a full convert, not a full proselyte. proselyte. And so um, he says, I preach the very same gospel to them. The very same gospel that I preach to the Jews, I preach to the Gentiles, and they believed it. And God gave them proof. He gave me proof that they genuinely believed genuinely believe because they received the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that we received. It was like a Gentile Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell on them, and it was evident that God's power was at work through them. So he says there was no distinction. In other words, no one had to become a Jew first. But they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, and they were converted and given the Spirit on the spot with no extra effort required. Peter says their hearts were cleansed by faith, not by law. Which is how we're all saved, right? By faith. And so then he asks this question, which is very important that Peter's asking the question. He says, why would we add law onto the Gentiles when we can't even do it ourselves? Our fathers couldn't do it. Nobody could do it. Why are we going to add the law back onto them? Now, you know why it's important that Peter's asking that question? Because Paul asked Peter the same question in in Galatians chapter 2. And historically, Galatians, uh, the controversy in Galatians probably happened right before this. Like months before this, if not, you know, closer. And what had happened was uh, Peter had come to Antioch and he was interacting with all these Gentiles and he had no problem eating with them, which was a big deal, right? Because Gentile and Jew are not supposed to Uh, cross paths or eat together according to Jewish law. But then when some Judaizers, some of this part of the circumcision, came to Antioch, uh, they convinced Peter that he should separate himself and, and, and remove himself from the presence of the Gentiles. And it was so bad that Paul says even Barnabas was led astray by it. And so Paul had to be the one to, he says, I confronted Peter to his face and told him that he was not living in step with the gospel. And he makes this argument that you, you are a Jew and even you don't follow the Jewish customs. Why are we making the Gentiles follow the Jewish customs? So Peter got it. He, it, like, it clicked for him. He's like, oh, you're right. What am I doing? And he repented. And now he's the one defending that position. He's here at the council before all the, uh, the apostles and the elders going, why are we adding the law onto people who can't do it? We couldn't do it. We're born Jews, and we can't do the law. Why are we going to make other people do the law also? He says, you're testing God. In other words, you are declaring to God that the gospel of Jesus is not sufficient. That we must add something of ourselves onto the finished work of Jesus. But look how he phrases it. This is really important. Uh, He says, we believe that we, this is verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Notice that he doesn't say, we believe they will be saved just as we will. He says, we believe we will be saved just like them. In other words, they got it right. 
right? That these Gentiles who simply received the finished work of Jesus with empty hands, that's it. That's all that God requires. And, and we don't need to heap anything else onto them. We believe that we're going to be saved the way they're saved, with that simple trust, that simple faith, uh, faith, grace. It's, that's what it is. It's not anything else. Now, here's the problem. Um, I know that a good liberal arts education can be a benefit. I have one, and I, boy, I get a lot of the jokes on The Simpsons now. Um, but here's, here's what's been fed to a lot of us. That mankind is mostly good. And given the right opportunities and the right education and the right training, mankind will do mostly good in the world. The problem with that is reality. Because you can look through the whole course of history and your own personal experience and know that that's just not true and never will be true. It just isn't. Okay? What's true is what Jeremiah 17 says, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That all of us are sinners by nature and by choice, uh, rebelling against the gracious authority of God in heaven and wanting to be our own authority and doing what we think is right in our own eyes. Every single one of us suffers from that poison of sin. And some of us rebel against God by disobeying his authority and doing whatever we want. And some of us rebel against God's authority by relying on our obedience. See, some of us disobey and some of us rely on our obedience, but either way, we're trying to save ourselves. We're trying to prove ourselves. We're trying to justify ourselves and it doesn't work. That's why Jesus came to live the life that none of us could live. He was perfect. He honored God. He loved his brother. He fulfilled every righteous requirement of God's law in our place because none of us could. Jesus kept the covenant that we couldn't keep. Jesus then died the death we all deserve because in, in our law breaking, right? This is part of Paul's argument in, in Galatians, right? If you want to keep the covenant, you want to keep the mark of circumcision, you're committing yourself to keep all 613 commands of the law and no one can do it. And so Jesus died the death we all deserve because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In thought, in word, in deed, in intention, we have all gone our own way. We have all rebelled against God. We all deserve judgment and punishment for that. But Jesus died the death we all deserve. He received the curses of the covenant that were due to us. He didn't break the covenant, but he received its curses. He was cut off from God on the cross. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did it all so that we could receive the blessings of the covenant that we didn't earn, that we don't deserve. It's by grace. Grace is a gift given to you for free at great expense to the giver of the gift, but it's their joy to do it for you. That's grace. Salvation is a gift given to us by God. It costs Jesus everything. But Hebrews reminds us, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. It was his joy 
to give his life for you, to live the life you couldn't, to die the death you deserve, to rise from the dead so that you could be forgiven and freed and welcomed into the family of God. And when Jesus on the cross cried out, it is finished, to telestai, it is finished. When he cried out, it is finished, he didn't mean kinda. He didn't mean for now. Until you miff it again and then you got some stuff to do to keep in God's good graces. That's not what he said. He said, it is finished. This is why Paul and Peter and Barnabas are fighting so hard to preserve the gospel. Not just for Antioch, but for us. For every single human being who will meet Jesus by faith, through grace, without a single ounce of conformity to tradition or additives. That's why they fought. And beloved, it is our privilege and our responsibility together to preserve the gospel for those who aren't even here yet. Because you realize there, there are people all over this city who are waking up this morning without Jesus. Some of them are hungover. And some of them are addicted. And some of them are depressed. And some of them are tired of the shallowness of life. And one day they'll come. But when they come, what message are they going to hear? Are they going to hear, cling to Jesus with the empty hands of faith, even if it's by, even if it's by the thinnest little straggly strand of faith? Or are they going to hear, believe in Jesus and get your act together? Look like me, vote like me, dress like me, become like me. It's one of the plagues on the American church is that we, we want outsiders to conform to insiders before they ever embrace Jesus. Jesus didn't ask for that. So salvation comes by faith. Salvation comes through grace. And I'll go ahead and give you the last point here. Salvation leads to love. Salvation leads to love. Let me get a sip of water and we'll knock the rest of this out. You guys hanging in? Look with me at verse 13. After they had finished speaking, James replied. James is the brother of Jesus. He's the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. And he says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, referring to Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now he's quoting from Amos chapter 9 here. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent that David, of David that has fallen. And I, excuse me, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things, known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read 
every Sabbath in the synagogues. All right, we'll stop there for a second. So Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas share with the whole church what God did on that two-year missionary journey, how grace was displayed in them and through them, and all these Gentiles came to faith and signs and wonders and all this cool stuff. And then James steps up. Uh, As I mentioned, he's the leader of the early church, brother of Jesus. Uh, He was known as Camel Knees because he prayed so much. He developed these big calluses on his knees from all his prayers, just like us, you know. And he said, he says, Simeon reminded us, Peter reminded us of what scripture actually affirms. And he summarizes, I love this, he summarizes all the prophets. He says all the prophets agree. And he summarizes all of them with this one quote from Amos chapter 9 saying that, that God is going to rebuild David's ruins, which Christians take as uh, the resurrection of Christ because the Savior, the Messiah, came through the lineage of David. And so in rebuilding the ruins of David, he's, it's, he's resurrecting Christ. And then he says a Gentile remnant will seek the Lord. So there are people who don't belong to the Jewish faith who are going to believe. This is what Scripture has promised. In other words, all along, the Bible has been pointing to a day when good news would be proclaimed, that is a great joy for all people. And so he speaks with clarity and conviction. He says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We are not going to put an extra burden on the Gentile converts. They have received the gospel of Christ with empty hands of faith. They have the evidence of the Holy Spirit in them. That's good enough. We don't want to add anything to them. Jesus said his yoke was easy and his burden was light, and we have a responsibility to keep it that way. See, James understands that any attempt to add to the gospel actually takes away from the gospel. All right, that's gospel math. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. So any attempt to add to the gospel actually subtracts from the gospel. But James does lay out a few conditions here, which are not issues of salvation, but issues of wisdom and love. And here's what they are. Abstain from food sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality, things that are strangled, and from blood. And we're looking at that like, what (laughs) in the world is he talking about? And here's the point. Here's what I think his point is. The grace of God makes a difference in our lives. Both in humility and in holiness. When he says here, uh, in every city, verse 21, in every city, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What he's essentially saying is, hey, when you go back to all the cities and towns that you have come from, uh, there are Jewish believers there. And you Gentile believers are going to be interacting with Jewish believers all over the place. And they may not have the freedom that you have due to the way that they grew up. They grew up with all these laws. They grew up with all these restrictions. And food issues in particular may be very troubling to them. When he, when he talks about the blood and the strangling and food sacrifice to idols. Now, Paul will go on and talk about this in later chapters, and he'll say, look, it's not that big a deal, but refrain from it, you know, if it's going to cause your brother to stumble. The point is refraining out of love. See, grace, if we experience the grace of God, this, this unmerited favor of God towards us because of what Jesus has done, that leads us to love both God and others. And love leads us to humility. Humility. 
to putting the other first. And humility lays down our rights. And so grace, because of grace, we don't flaunt our freedoms. Because of grace, we don't try to prove over and over again that our way is the right way. And, and so, I mean, Paul will talk about this later in, in, book, in the book of Romans, right? Um, you, I'll just put it in today's context. Um, alcohol is one of those issues, right? If you have uh, friends, even in this church, who grew up teetotalers or who have an issue uh, with alcohol, you're not going to invite them over and be like, hey, have some, you know, like, we're going to just drink in front of you, right? You love them enough to abstain from that. You don't flaunt your freedom in front of them. Similarly, uh, if you have friends that are vegan or vegetarian, you're not going to invite them over for filet mignon, right? Because you love them and you want to honor them and you want to serve them. And that's all he's talking about here is love, grace leads us to love. Love leads us to humility. Humility lays down our rights. But secondly, grace leads us to growth and holiness. So when he's talking about sexual immorality here, you have to understand that um, pagan Gentile cultures were wild, <laughs> Okay, and there was all kinds of um, immorality that happened in these pagan temples. Um, if you needed a good crop or you wanted a child or whatever, you would go to these temples and you would make sacrifice. And a lot of those um, temple worship included sensuality. And so that's just kind of par for the course in these Gentile cultures. And Paul, uh, Peter's argument, Paul's argument here is, if Christ would lay his life down for our sin we can lay down our old way of life. We can learn to find pleasure and peace and comfort and rest in him instead. So I'm going to skip a bunch here because I'm out of time. Uh, we read verse 30 earlier. The letter gets delivered, right? They commission a couple guys to go with Paul and Barnabas just to validate their claims. Send this letter and they read the letter, and, and this is what it says. These guys came down here, but they weren't from us. Like, we didn't send them on official business, and uh, they troubled you with their additions to the gospel, and we're telling you they're wrong. It's just by faith through grace. That's it. But please abstain from these things. And when the letter is read, the people rejoice. They're not frustrated. They're not burdened. They're not downtrodden. They rejoice. And beloved, this, this is what Jesus has come to purchase for us. He has come to make our joy complete and full. He sent his spirit to live inside of us in order that we might, that joy might grow in us like a buoy to help us stay afloat in times of trouble and hardship. Joy comes from knowing, knowing deep down in your soul that Jesus has done everything that is required for your full and final acceptance before the God of the universe. And that all you have to do is receive Jesus' finished work with the empty hands of faith. It is a work of grace. And so maybe today for you, the prayer is that God would restore the joy of your salvation. that you would throw off what hinders you. Um, there are so many of us who wake up every day thinking that we've got to do stuff to make God happy. 
Like we understand justification in the sense that like we're forgiven of what we did, but we don't think we're liked very much. And so we're going to get up and have a quiet time, or we're going to get up and we're going to pray for all the martyrs, and, and, and all, you know, like we're going to pray for all the oppressed nations, and we're going to read our Bible for an hour, and, and we're going to you know, listen to Christian radio on the way to work, and we're going to not curse in traffic, and we're going to, right? And, so, and then you fail at all those things, and you're like, God hates me. I know it. And it's a lie from the enemy. Because everything that was required for your full and final acceptance before God has been accomplished by Jesus in your place. And nothing that you do is going to make him love you any more, and no mistake or failure you make is going to make him love you any less. But there are others of you who are just, you're going through life, and boy, it's turbulent, isn't it? And the bottom has dropped out, and you feel like God has abandoned you, and you don't know what you did wrong. And you're tempted to just walk away from this whole thing because it doesn't seem to matter. And that's not true either. The hardship that you're enduring sometimes is because of your sin, but most of the time is just because you live in a broken world. And hardship comes to all of us. But those who can cling to Jesus in the midst of the storms will be buoyed, right? We can have joy in the midst of that trial. Um, a brother right before the service started gave me a scripture. I just want to read read for you and let you do with it what you want. It comes from Psalm 61. Maybe some of this, maybe this is some of you this morning. He says, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. And then hear this, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. Sacred pause. Is there anything in that text about let me earn my acceptance before you? Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. So here's what I want to do. I don't have any questions to give you this morning. Um, but what I want to do is I want to just let the room be silent for a minute. Where else do you go these days where it's just quiet? <laughs> I want to give you a moment to pray and just to be still before God and, and listen. And uh, if there are burdens that you're dealing with, if there's sin that you're struggling with, if there are things you need to surrender to the Lord, I want to give you the space to do that. Um, and so we'll just let it be still for maybe two minutes or so, three minutes in here. The band can come back up and kind of get tuned up, but we'll just be silent and still. And when you're ready, uh, I'm going to let you come to communion. Now, we're doing communion. We're kind of easing our way back into the old way of doing communion, okay? So if you're still COVID conscious, which I highly respect, there are those rip and sip cups in the center. Um, but otherwise, there are uh, matzah crackers on the, on the sides there, which you can break a piece off. And then you can dip into the, either the juice or the wine. And uh, we still have, I believe, the gluten-free uh, option available. It's kind of a salad bar of communion. So um, you can do, do it how you need to do it, how you feel comfortable doing it, okay? But if you have trusted in Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, if you are clinging to him with, with the empty hands of faith, 
And you're welcome to come to these tables to participate in communion, remembering Jesus' body was broken to make you whole. His blood was spilled to cleanse you from sin and unrighteousness and to make you his own. Uh, So you can come when you're ready. Make your way back to your seats. Uh, Those black boxes are back there for for giving, the baskets for those Connect cards. Uh, So we'll just be quiet for a couple minutes here, and then uh, we'll sing a couple songs as we wrap things up. Father, I thank you so much for these men and women. I thank you for the opportunity to gather in this room with them and online. And uh, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would just right now bring encouragement, bring joy. Uh, Lord, that you'd bring strengthening in the midst of hard things. We are saved by faith. We are saved through grace. We are saved to love, to love you and to love one another. And so, Lord, in this moment, as we sit here still before you, uh, meet us here, call us to repentance, encourage us. And as we participate in communion and giving and as we lift our voices in song, I pray that you would meet us in this place and that in your presence we would experience joy as we sing these songs. Would you be glorified? And uh, Lord, would, you, would, would we be edified in your presence? I pray this blessing over us in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.